My name is Dan Albin, and I'm an attorney at the Institute for Justice. And I'm Paul Avalar. I'm a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. So, Paul, how do you think things went today at the oral argument? Uh, I think they went well today. Sitting, from, sitting at council's table, it seemed that the court was very interested in the facts of the case, which is always a great sign. Um, and they were concerned, of course, about the standard. But we expected that as we're basically litigating against the standard here. Rational basis is a, really a meaningless test. And the state argued, really, that it was a meaningless test today. I don't think the court liked that very much. How did you feel about it, sitting up there at the podium, actually getting the questions? Well, it was a pretty hot bench. I got a lot of questions. But I think we were ready to answer those questions. And uh, I was encouraged that the court was asking so many skeptical questions of the government's counsel because I thought um, they didn't have very good answers. And uh, some of those questions reflected that the, the court had done some digging on its own and, and was pretty skeptical of the government's claims. Yeah, and, and we, should, we should probably explain to people why that's such a big deal. Sure. I mean, this case is litigated under something called the rational basis test, which we like to joke requires neither a rationale nor a basis in many instances. Why don't you explain to them what the court was thinking about today when they heard this case that had so many great facts but still felt bad about it? Sure. So, uh, in economic liberty cases is like this uh, occupational licensing case, courts evaluate economic regulations under rational basis review, under which um, they're supposed to uphold the regulation if there is a rational basis for that, for that regulation, if a rational legislator could think there's a good reason for the regulation. And so we had to use uh, evidence to uh, refute all of the asserted rational bases from the government in order to show that we would win. Now, the government took the position that evidence doesn't matter and you don't have to have uh, a very strong connection or really, mm -hmm. or um, you know, any kind of ration rational connection. Just any connection was enough. As long as there was one hour of training in the cosmetology uh, licensing requirements that had something to do with African hair braiding, even though it wasn't about braiding, they would say, well, that's fine. Um, the court should uphold the licensing scheme. And we had to convince the court that no, there has to be more than just a tiny little overlap. There has to be an actual rational basis for, uh, for the government to take the action it's taking. And that here, where less than 7% of, uh, of the cosmetology license had anything to do with, with hair braiding, that just wasn't enough. Yeah, and it, I think it's important to stress that. I mean, the state conceded several times that 7% is the most that's, 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 that's uh, related here. That meant that they admitted 1,400 of the 1,500 hours not relevant to braiders, and yet they argued they could still force braiders uh, to, to take those hours. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, at oral argument, the, the court asked the government's counsel about that and said, is this really true? Or does the court, does the board really concede that uh, the vast majority of these hours are unrelated? And, and they uh, bit the bullet as they had to and said, yeah, uh, you know, in the cases of barbers, it's 11%. In the case of cosmetologists, it's under 10%. But we still think that's enough. And um, the court should uphold this, even though it doesn't yeah. have all that much to do with hair braiding. Yeah. As, as we pointed out, or as you pointed out many times today, and we pointed out in our briefing, they're really trying to, to bootstrap this totally burdensome, arbitrary regulation because of this tiny little overlap. And, and, the, and the state's argument today, I mean, under their theory, they could force almost anyone to go to cosmetology school. That's right. And in fact, uh, one of the judges asked me a question about, about precisely that. Like, the, the fact that the board exercises disciplinary 
uh, oversight over hair braiders, isn't that enough to justify um, licensing them as cosmetologists? And my response was, well, if that was enough, then you could, you could justify licensing any occupation as a cosmetologist because any occupation could theoretically be subject to discipline by the Board of Cosmetology. And if that standing alone is a legitimate government interest that um, sustains and allows the government to bootstrap the remaining 1,500 hours of education, well, then, you know, rational basis review is out the window and everybody can be licensed in any profession regardless of whether it has any connection or not because there might be disciplinary review of what you do. Yeah. This was one of three cases that we launched all on the same day. Yep. Uh, this one here in Missouri. You were in Arkansas. Arkansas. And we had a third case out in Washington State. That's right. And that was all part of our national braiding initiative, which you head up. That's right. We, we launched all those cases and the initiative itself way back in June of 2014. Um, we realized that IJ has been representing hair braiders across the country since our founding back in 1991. But, you know, we realized that there was a, a lot more that we could do. And, and with a sustained effort, we really thought that we could drive a lot of change in, in a short amount of time. So we had been contacted by, by braiders in these various states and said, hey, we need your help, too. The kind of thing that you've done before, that's happening to us. We're not able to earn a living because of these ridiculous regulations. And so, you know, we, we, we got these cases. We had great clients in, in Missouri, in Arkansas, in Washington, and, and we pushed them all forward on the same day. Um, Arkansas and Washington eventually capitulated, but, you know, Missouri is stuck to its guns. <laughs> and so here we are now, the three, Over three years later, later. Uh, still litigating on behalf of Tamika and Joba our clients here in Missouri. And of, although we launched those cases, um, you know, all on the same day, there was obviously a lot of work that went into that beforehand, starting, um, well, we started interviewing clients and meeting with clients in January of 2014 in order to launch the case in June. And so you and I and our colleague Greg Reed, who's preparing for a trial right now, were all here in St. Louis meeting with uh, many uh, African-style braiders Absolutely. to try to find some ideal clients to bring a case challenging the cosmetology licensing regulations. And we met with, with Joba, we met with Tamika, we met with a number of other braiders, mm -hmm. and they really got it. Uh, Missouri is a state where uh, the braiders organized a number of times, tried to get the legislature to deregulate braiders, put braiders outside of the cosmetology licensing scheme, got so close several times, but the legislature never ultimately passed one of, uh, one of these reform bills. And so it was time for a lawsuit. And we realized that Joba and Tamika were ideal clients. Yeah. Um, you know, they're charismatic and they're smart, they're friendly, um, and they, you know, they represent their communities well. Uh, Joba is uh, an African immigrant who um, uh, actually has a master's degree in public health, and um, you know, she provides African braiding here in St. Louis and has for almost 20 years since she since she immigrated and became a U.S. citizen. And she provides for her family with uh, what she earns as, as a braider. So she did a great job of representing uh, a number of African immigrants who have come to St. Louis, become U.S. citizens, and are living the American dream. Whereas Tamika um, was born here in the U.S., um, learned a, a form of African-style hair braiding called sister locks that was actually invented by one of IJ's earlier clients, yep. um, Dr. Uh, Joanne Dr. Cornwell mm -hmm. in California and uh, was offering uh, sister locks braiding techniques uh, here in St. Louis and was trying to get her uh, salon off the ground. She had been operating in, um, in her home and wanted to 
open a business, but was scared that these cosmetology licensing regulations would shut her down. And so uh, Tamika and her sisters uh, opened Locks of Glory on Del Mar, and, um, and they were open for business. And we brought the lawsuit, I think, within a week of their grand opening, something yeah. like that. So that was why we, uh, that was why yeah. we um, you know, chose Tamika and Joba. Yeah. And um, you know, we want to be able to vindicate, vindicate their rights to earn a living. Yeah, Tamika and Joba are really, I think, emblematic of, of the kinds of, of women that we've represented in the past uh, from a broad, uh, broad uh, walks of life. Uh, immigrants, native-born, uh, you know, highly educated uh, women who have come from or immigrated from countries where, you know, they just don't educate girls, and so they, they come to this country and they don't have the sort of uh, education. They never had the sort of educational opportunities that that we take for granted here. And at that point, they're married, they have children, they're already working, they can't afford to take time away from their families and away from work to pay thousands of dollars for totally irrelevant training. And so these are all women who, who get it. They're, they're women who really embody the, the, the American ideal of going out and working hard and providing for yourself and your family owning your own business, starting your own business, and really having something that is your own that, that you can control and take pride in. And, and that's what all these women do, and, and Tamika and Joba are great examples of that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Joba actually went through hair braiding training in Senegal yeah. and got a private certificate showing that she had gone through all this training, was certified as, a, as an African hair braider. Of course, that doesn't mean anything when you come to the United States, and it didn't mean anything to the Missouri Board of Cosmetology and Bar Examiners. But Joba had training in, in Senegal on how to do the actual techniques that she actually offers day to day, and uh, the board didn't care about that. And so Joba tried to do an apprenticeship with uh, a local cosmetologist, but realized after putting in uh, thousands of hours just in the apprenticeship that cosmetology was not what she wanted to do. She yeah. didn't want any involvement with the harmful chemicals and heat services that cosmetologists use. And so uh, she said, this isn't for me. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's when we got involved and helped her file the lawsuit. And sort of in the broader context, we, we talked about uh, braiders and the American dream. I mean, this is, braiders are, are just a small example of the larger issue too, right? Uh, this, this case in particular arises in, a, in, in the context of a larger national discussion about occupational licensing. You know, back in the 1950s, only about one in 20 Americans, about 5%, needed a license to do their job. Today, that number is uh, about uh, one in four, one in three, something like that. So a massive increase in the number of people who have to have a license. Not because there are so many more doctors or lawyers, but because governments, state governments, keep licensing more and more occupations. And so there's this weird sort of forming bipartisan consensus that there's a problem here. And cases like this and, and braiders like Tamika and Joba really sort of illustrate those problems. And, and this is sort of driven by a couple of different things. It's driven by protectionism, where folks who are in those industries sort of want to pull the, the ladders up after mm -hmm. themselves and keep other people from entering the profession so that they can raise their prices and don't have to compete with as many people offering the same or similar services. Yeah. And then it's also uh, driven by uh, you know, some of the, the schools that offer the licenses pressuring state boards and pressuring state legislatures to expand and, and keep in place 
these licenses. So in, in this case, the most resistance that the braiders have faced here in Missouri has actually been from the cosmetology and barber schools because they don't want to lose students. They want braiders to have to go get a cosmetology license or a barber license and pay thousands of dollars in tuition. The average tuition is over $11,000 in order to get a license in a totally separate occupation. That's unconstitutional and that's why we sued. People may have noticed the building behind us sort of framed nicely by the arch. Why don't you, what is the historical significance of this building, Dan? Well, this is the building where the Dred Scott opinion was uh, originally, or the Dred Scott case was originally heard. And, you know, that's a case that deprived many Americans of their constitutional rights and is rightly recognized now as sort of one of the black spots on American uh, constitutional history. It's, it's an embarrassment for, um, for America that we didn't recognize uh, the constitutional rights of of African Americans who were who were being held in slavery, and so, um, you know, Dred Scott is is sort of the the low the lowest point or one of the lowest points of constitutional protections uh, in this country for people of of all backgrounds, of all racial and economic backgrounds, and um, you know we're trying to bring the Constitution back to protecting as many people as possible and protecting people who have maybe not received the same protections uh, historically um, and who haven't received the same protections for economic activity, yeah. for things like the right to earn a living. Because people overlook, you know, there obviously, you know, civil rights involves a number of things, the right to speak, uh, all sorts of other rights, but the right to earn a living is, yeah. is one of the fundamental rights and it's one that's been overlooked by the courts. And so we're trying to uh, bring about um, a change where courts recognize and protect the, the right to earn a living. It's, it's, it's a sad commentary that so many people overlook the importance of economic rights uh, in American freedom. Um, you know, someone like Frederick Douglass wrote very movingly about uh, his ability to, to sort of self-determine because he finally had, once he, once he fled slavery, had the ability to work for himself. Every dollar he earned was his own and he got to decide what he did with that. That sort of basic economic self-determination uh, feeds into so many other rights. The, the right to own your own home, uh, the right to own your own business, the right to provide for your children, provide for their education as, as the way you see fit. It's hard to do a lot of those things unless you have the ability in the first instance to, to work at an honest job and earn an honest living.